0: society 13 podcast network redefining
1: podcasts do you like to listen
0: Hello you spectacular people. Welcome to this 224th episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast.
2: Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I
0: am your host Diane. And this is Denise. On this episode, we're doing Haunted Cemeteries 4. It's gonna be a little different than our other Haunted Cemetery episodes because on this one, we had listener Suzanne Silk suggest that we do symbology and architecture in cemeteries. And uh, we said, hey, that sounds like a great idea. She was going to join us, but we just couldn't get the scheduling to work. So she's not going to be joining us on this episode. Instead, we will be having author and historian Annette Student, otherwise known as Mom, joining us to discuss some of these aspects of cemeteries. So we're really looking forward to that. And we have something special to share with all of the listeners that I think is going to make it even more fun for you to go exploring in the cemeteries. Before we get into all of that, though, we had some very sad news for our History Ghost Bump family. And it's kind of fitting that we're talking about it on Haunted Cemeteries 4 because we recently found out that Dana Jones, who joined us on Haunted Cemeteries 3 and shared with us about the Maple Hill Cemetery in Huntsville, Alabama, passed away. And uh, this happened last week. This is September of 2017. She was only 38 years old and left behind two children and a husband, and it was very sudden. It was not expected.
2: And so it just really makes our hearts hurt that we lost somebody so young in general, but that it was one of our spectacular members and also one of our listener hosts that we had on with one of the episodes. So we were very, very sad to hear that she had left us.
0: What I did is I went back in, Denise, and I did a new little intro for episode 217 that she joined us on so that from here on out, people will know a little bit more about Dana and that she had passed away. We want to thank Chris, her co-worker, who contacted us. He also joined the Spooktacular crew. And he sent me an email and he just said, uh, I really enjoy your show. And I'm a co-worker of Dana's in Huntsville. It's with a heavy heart that I have to pass along that she passed away last Thursday night. She was a wonderful person and a great storyteller, as we know from the show. And I was listening back to it again today. And as we're recording this, she actually had her memorial today. And we just laughed continuously during that interview with her. Yes. Had a great time with it. I thought you ladies would like to know that she will be laid to rest in the Maple Hill Cemetery in part due to appreciation and love for it she developed while doing research for your show. Thank you for giving us a place to hear her voice going forward. She really enjoyed your show and was thrilled at the opportunity to participate. And that was something, Denise, that we had discussed is we just felt so honored that we have an opportunity here where her voice has been immortalized now and that her family and friends, if they ever want to hear her voice, they can just turn on episode 217 and there she is again.
2: Yeah. And the thing that's really special is what he alluded to is that she has been laid to rest in a cemetery that she absolutely loved. And so she's definitely in in the perfect place for her.
0: And I have to say, you know, whenever death touches us, it's always, it's kind of hard to think about death because it's like all of a sudden those people aren't here. And you wonder if there was something that they knew about their death ahead of time. Like we hear stories about. President Abraham Lincoln, knowing how he was going to die and having dreams about his death. And so he knew somehow and in some way that he was going to pass. And as I was listening back to the episode with Dana, and she was talking about Maple Hill, she just kept going on about how peaceful it was. And she just really enjoyed walking through it and in the cool of the day. And she just kept going on and on about how peaceful it was. And so it just made me feel comforted to know that she's being laid to rest in a place that she felt connected to and that she already felt was a very peaceful place to be. As I said in the intro that we put for that episode, she was an active member of our Spooktacular crew. So it affected all of us. You know, she wasn't just somebody who kind of passed through or she was going to take part in the virtual trick-or-treating where you guys are being victims to each other and kind of the secret Santa thing only for Halloween. She was going to be a part of that. And so the Spooktacular crew is trying to get together some special stuff for her kids. If you are interested, the family was asking people to donate to the Greater Huntsville humane society she was really active in taking care of abandoned animals and that was very close to her heart so if there was something that you wanted to give to that would be a good place to do it so dana we will definitely be missing you we know that you go on because that's the nice thing about believing in the things that we believe in denise we believe that the soul and the spirit does continue to go on and uh, we dedicate this episode to her
2: yes we do
0: We want to welcome to the spectacular crew, Jill. Hi, Jill. Nicole. Hey, Nicole. Gloria. Hi, Gloria.
2: Jackie with a Q and a U. Hello, Jackie with a Q and a U. Don. Hey, Don. Travis. Hi, Travis. Elizabeth. Hey, Elizabeth. Jessica. Hey, Jessica. Danny. Hi, Danny. Teresa with an H. Hello, Teresa with an H. Sheila. Hi, Sheila.
0: Janine. Hey, Janine. S. Hello, S. Sabrina. Hey, Sabrina. Cassie. Hey, Cassie. And as we said earlier, Chris, who is Dana's co worker. And hello, Chris. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Nodity
2: Sigurd Eisteinsson was a prominent Viking leader who ruled Scotland's Orkney Islands in the late 800s. He was the second Viking Earl of Orkney and he had succeeded his brother Ragnvald. He was a fierce warrior and led the Viking conquest of what is now Northern Scotland. Though he agreed to a peace meeting with Malbrite, Earl of Scots, the meeting soon devolved into a fight and the two men battled each other fiercely. Einstein's finally defeated Malbrite and with the final swing of his sword he decapitated his rival. He grabbed the severed head and attached it to his saddle as he rode away. He wanted it prominently displayed and wanted to be able to see his handiwork. There was just one problem with the placement of the head. It was positioned in such a way that Malbright's long teeth were able to dig into Isonson's leg as his horse galloped. This caused a wound on his leg that later became infected. That infection eventually killed the Viking and that certainly is odd.
1: Creepy makes history more delicious.
2: And now, This Month in History.
0: In the month of September, on the 25th in 1690, the first multi-page American newspaper was published. That paper was called Public Occurrences, Both Foreign and Domestic, and there was only one edition printed. It appeared in Boston, Massachusetts, and was edited by Benjamin Harris and printed by Richard Pierce. The paper was intended to be published monthly, but British authorities declared the paper offensive and ordered its immediate suppression. The order read, quote, Whereas some have lately presumed to print and disperse a pamphlet entitled Public Occurrences, Both Foreign and Domestic, Boston, Thursday, September 25, 1690, "...without the least privity and countenance of authority, the governor and council having had the perusal of said pamphlet, and finding that therein contain reflections of a very high nature, as also sundry, doubtful, and uncertain reports do hereby manifest and declare their high resentment and disallowance of said pamphlet, in order that the same be suppressed and called in, strictly forbidden any person or persons for the future to set forth anything in print without license first obtained from those that are or shall be appointed by the government to grant the same." End quote. Did any of you understand that? Yeah, me neither.
2: Many cemeteries have been designed to serve as parks. They have many features that we would find in large public parks like statuary, stone architecture, large trees, lush landscaping, and beautiful flowers. For taphophiles, cemeteries offer a place of adventure and discovery, whether it is seeking out a specific burial plot or figuring out the meaning of the symbology we find there. For genealogists, cemeteries offer a way to track down ancestors and trace their movements. For historians, cemeteries are a giant story and record of an area. On this episode, we are going to discuss cemeteries in general, including the architecture found there, the meaning of the symbols, the materials used, and why we love them so much. We also will share the history and hauntings of a couple of cemeteries in Wyndham, Maine, Chute Road in Anderson, and Hookman Cemetery in Connecticut.
0: We are joined now by historian and author of Denver's Riverside Cemetery Where History Lies, Annette L. Student, who also just happens to be Mom. How are you, Mom? Very good. And how are you today? I'm doing great. We're looking forward to having you on to talk a little bit about cemeteries. Well, Mom, the first thing I should ask you before we get into talking about the history of cemeteries and symbology and the architecture is what got you interested in cemeteries to begin with?
1: As you and your sister were growing up and we went on vacations across the United States and we would do different states, I usually tried to visit cemeteries of historic people that were buried in those areas. And a lot of times it rained when we were visiting those cemeteries. (laughs) I don't know why, but that usually happened. But I never realized that while we were visiting those cemeteries, that you would later have a real interest in it too, that this was a byproduct of all of that. I knew I was interested in it. And I always felt that when you visit cemeteries and you see the historic people that are buried in them, it gives validation to their lives. You know, you can visit their homes. You can read biographies about them. But when you visit the cemetery and you stand in front of their grave, it validates the fact that those people were really alive and you see their final resting place. And it kind of can connect you a little bit with that person. Growing up, I was probably maybe nine, 10 years old. I remember our family visiting Forest Lawn, and I think it's in Glendale. It's either Hollywood or Glendale. And it's a very beautiful cemetery. It, it's just gorgeous, and they have a stained glass window of uh, Jesus resurrecting into heaven. They also have a huge painting of the crucifixion. It's a very, very long one. They had to build a special building to house this painting, but there are also a lot of historic people buried there, and it's like a park. It's just gorgeous. In fact, we were there one time when an earthquake hit. I'll never forget that, but I guess it was at that point that I realized that cemeteries were not scary places. In fact, your grandfa- your great-grandfather and my grandfather and my aunt and uncle and my cousin are all buried in one of the Forest Lawn cemeteries. They're buried in the Covina Hills one. So cemeteries have never been scary for me. I've Even walking across the graves have never been scary to me. I have to say I'm
0: jealous because I want to go to Forest Lawn someday. So that's so cool that you were there as a kid.
1: I would like to introduce this to this this tells a little bit about what cemeteries are. And I I got this quote from a book on Allegheny Cemetery in Pittsburgh, and it's entitled, This is a Cemetery. Communities accord respect, families bestow reverence, historians seek information, and our heritage is thereby enriched. Testimonies of devotion, pride and remembrance are carved in stone to pay warm tribute to accomplishments and to the life, not death, of a loved one. The cemetery is homeland for family memorials that are a sustaining source of comfort to the living. A cemetery is a history of people, a perpetual record of yesterday, and a sanctuary of peace and quiet today. A cemetery exists because every life is worth living and remembering always.
0: That's why we love cemeteries and why we think it's so important that they not be destroyed or disturbed or desecrated in some way because they really are a record of history. When you go to a location, especially if you go to like a ghost town, there may be nobody there anymore, but if there's a cemetery there, you can find out who used to be there.
1: And people today that are doing their genealogy are finding out how important cemeteries are because they can find their loved one a lot of times buried in them. They sometimes get the birth and death dates or years of their loved one but there too you got to be a little bit careful because those things can be carved in incorrectly and once they're carved in stone they're impossible to get rid of
0: we have to go way back to go back to some of our oldest burial monuments this is when men decided to not just put bodies in the ground or in mounds but actually do something that honored people a little bit more the tumulus is one of mankind's oldest burial monuments, and this dates back to four to 5,000 BC. These are all over the landscape in Western Europe. They usually are monuments that are assemblages of large rocks. We call those megaliths a lot of the time. For example, Stonehenge is considered a megalith, not necessarily a place where people were buried, but this is a system that they would use to honor the dead. There are some larger cemeteries that have a tumulus to this day. Generally, they're used when fraternal organizations set up a plot area for their members. Military organizations will use them sometimes.
1: In some cemeteries, you will have what's called a semotaph. A semotaph is a monument honoring a dead person whose remains are elsewhere. In other words, you can have a monument or a headstone. Well, it's usually not a headstone, but a monument or a statue to a person in one cemetery, maybe because they live there, but their body is actually buried somewhere else. And that's the case of a statue that is standing in Riverside Cemetery in Denver, Colorado. There's a huge statue of Colonel Archer in the cemetery. And we always assumed he was buried there. And come to find out he's not buried there at all. He's buried in a cemetery in St. Louis. It was erected because he was the person who brought indoor water and electricity into the homes in Denver. And so, they were honoring him, basically. Why they put it in the cemetery, we have no idea. It was possibly put there because they maybe wouldn't let it be put in the city somewhere or there wasn't a city park to put it in. For whatever reason, it was placed there.
0: Up until the Reformation, most cemeteries were just random headstones. People had to start looking outside of churchyards because during the Reformation and after that, churches weren't doing that as much. There are a few that still do it today, but generally they had to look outside of it. And this is when we come into having more of our organized cemeteries that eventually in the early 19th century become our garden cemeteries.
1: Most cemeteries in the east were located near or next to churches. Sometimes there were a few trees planted in these cemeteries, but usually they didn't have grass, shrubs, or flowers. They would probably have flowers on the day that somebody was buried there because they would all be placed around the grave, but then later on they would be gone. Western cemeteries were considered nothing more than boneyards or boot hills. After picturesque and park-like Mount Auburn Cemetery near Boston opened in 1831, other cemeteries across the United States were created with attractively planned and landscaped grounds resembling parks. You want to know why Mount Auburn was built or was created where it was outside of Boston? Why? Because they found out that when people were buried years ago, they were buried usually in a plywood box. Well, what does wood do when it's underground? Rots. You got it. And what do bodies do when they're underground? Rot. And when all that rotten stuff is going down, it's getting into the groundwater. So it wasn't real healthy to have these cemeteries in the middle of a city. That's why when you have coffins put into the ground today, they are put into a lead like coffin itself. When the coffin would decay or whatever, it's all contained that that doesn't now can't go into the groundwater and it may not be lead it may be something else now that they use to put coffins into if i'm not mistaken either that or the coffins themselves now are built in such a way that they won't deteriorate like the wood coffins did because of that they decided to start building cemeteries outside of the city well now you're building these cemeteries or creating them outside of the city and they thought well wouldn't it be nice to have it look more like a park way out in the country. And it had a a nice effect too, that the fact that it was a park, people could come and visit grandma and Aunt Tilda or great grandma on a Sunday afternoon, and they'd have a nice little picnic lunch there. And grandma was attending too, if you believed in it, if maybe she was a ghost sitting there, who knows? Anyway, economic status often reflected the style, size, and materials used for tombstones, monuments, and mausoleums, memorializing the deceased In these cemeteries, in a lot of the early cemeteries, like the Colonial Cemetery in Savannah, we saw different types of mausoleums. A lot of them were built into the ground, and all you saw were the rooftops up above ground. But a lot of the headstones and that we did see a few of the monuments, but they were smaller monuments. A lot of headstones were there in Boston. When you look, there are a lot of headstones. There aren't great big, huge monuments in these park-like places. They could put those now. Not all all cemeteries have mausoleums or big, beautiful monuments. When you go through the different Midwestern states, like in Iowa and Nebraska and these places, they have a lot of cemeteries just out in the farmland. Where Christy lives, your sister and my daughter live, there's probably about five cemeteries in that general area that we drive by. And they're beautiful places. They have grass and trees and things, but none of the monuments are big. Even the memorials that they have are usually smaller ones. They're maybe waist high at the most, maybe a little taller. There are no mausoleums and they have head, you know, basic headstones too. The farmers didn't put their money into putting in these huge monuments in that and there you go with the economic status, whatever the people could afford or whatever they would they could put up, they did to honor the person that died. And sometimes there are cemeteries where there are no markers whatsoever for a person that's buried there because either they were indigent or their family was poor and they couldn't afford to buy it. A monument or a head, even a headstone to put on their grave. So it's just an empty plot of ground.
0: That's true. Bas- your basic potters field. There's usually no headstones in the potters field, and I'm I'm assuming they know where the bodies are in a potters field, so they don't end up accidentally digging somebody up when they're digging another grave. I don't know.
1: Well, it depends on how good your cemetery records are. Some cemeteries kept excellent records. They know where everybody is and they know just exactly where they are. And then you have some of your older cemeteries or cemeteries that have become neglected. The records maybe have been lost or they didn't keep good records to begin with or they didn't keep the records up. It just, it all depends on cemeteries themselves. And some of the private cemeteries maybe weren't as good as some of the more public cemeteries were. Or religious cemeteries are better sometimes like your Catholic cemeteries and other religious cemeteries kept better records than, say, a private cemetery did. So it just depends on the cemetery itself. And that makes it also difficult for people that are doing their genealogy, because they know that somebody's buried there, that they're supposed to be buried there, but if they don't have the records in the office, they can't find the person.
0: There's a lot of different architecture that you will find in a cemetery. I just love it. Most architecture falls under a handful of them from your Gothic cathedral, You can see Egyptian architecture, classic revival. You'll see these when you see columns, column capitals. That's considered classical revival. And a part of this is also Doric and Tuscan architecture. And the Doric can be separated into Grecian and Roman. There's Art Deco, Art Nouveau, modern classicism, Islamic architecture, and that includes onion domes, horseshoe arches, mosaics, carvings, inlays, that kind of thing. Byzantine architecture. This is very similar to Islamic in style. This developed after Constantine established his imperial capital at Byzantium, which is now today known as Istanbul, Turkey. That was back in 330 A.D., The inside of mausoleums that are decorated in this style usually have these mosaic tile murals inside of them. Very cool looking. There's a good example of one of these at Woodlawn Cemetery, which is in the Bronx in New York. Romanesque architecture is also really popular. And you guys have probably heard of Richardson Romanesque. And this was modified by American architect Henry Hobson Richardson towards the end of the 19th century. And basically what he did is the Romanesque style used smooth stones. He went with rough stones. So that's how you can tell Richardson Romanesque from just your regular Romanesque. And then, of course, in a cemetery, you're going to have architecture that is very specific to graveyards, and that is funerary architecture.
1: Well, they're small granite monuments, and they're still permitted in some cemeteries, but most cemeteries today prefer and sometimes only permit the flat bronze plates or granite markers that are placed on the ground. And that's because it makes groundskeeping easier. They can cut the lawn easier, they can can edge around it easier, and so they're going the easy route. Previous monuments, headstones, and memorials, came in various sizes and shapes and were usually made from granite, sandstone, limestone, marble, and white bronze. Now, out of all of those, granite and the white bronze are probably the only ones that don't deteriorate over time. Now, white bronze can deteriorate to a certain extent too, but they don't, not as bad as, say, sandstone or limestone. Water, if it gets into cracks or something, they actually can almost like melt. And there are examples of that in Riverside where there was a big monument that looks like it's just melted away. It's, there's nothing there but this spire that looks like it melted. Wow. <laughs> and marble, too. I always thought marble would last long, but sometimes marble doesn't either. And marble is used for military headstones, and they do replace those when they do go bad. A variety of monuments could be purchased from mail-order catalogs, such as Sears, Roebuck & Company, also Montgomery Wards, in the early years, you know, like back in the 1800s. Granite, sandstone, marble, or brick was used, usually used to construct crypts and mausoleums. Occasionally, metal arbors are found in cemeteries. These were an inexpensive way of marking a family member's grave, and those too could be gotten from different catalogs. Usually, there was a wide metal strip across the upper half of the arbor bearing the deceased person's name. Flowers were sometimes planted on each side of these arbors, or vines were planted and trained to curve over the arbor to make it look more attractive. The metal arbors, and especially the metal strip, have not always passed the test of time. Sometimes you'll see the arbor there, and it's all crooked and rusted and really dejected-looking. The deceased person's name, in most cases, can no longer even be seen on a metal strip if it's still there. Some cemeteries have plots that are surrounded by metal, rod, brick, or stone fences— These are usually family plots. They may have used fences to mark the location of their graves for family members or protect them from the public walking across their graves or from vandalism because sometimes these gates can be locked. And, you know, you see the fences that are that way where they're metal rod, black metal rods that go up and they have maybe they look like spears with the points on them. Do you know that's a German thing? I did not know that. Yep. That's a German thing. And then, of course, we have the white bronze monuments. White bronze monuments were cast by the Western White Bronze Company of Des Moines, Iowa, and I heard in one of your other broadcasts another company that made white bronze monuments. They were less expensive to purchase than stone monuments, but time has proved they are longer lasting than many of the stone ones. Produced from 1880 to about 1910, the monuments were catalog available. They lost their popularity in the early 1910s because they were considered cheap looking. The company provided 2,500 different designs and shipped their products nationwide. The hollow white bronze monuments were available in a variety of sizes and shapes to elaborate motifs such as mourners, angels, draped obelisks, and urns. Side panels attached with screws could be customized and sometimes contain names of family members interred nearby, funeral motifs, and symbols or remain blank. They also, of course, put have the name of the deceased on it with probably the name and the, d- the date of their birth and death. Flat white bronze headstones with various symbols decorating the front and back were also available.
0: Now, one of my favorite monuments, and you don't see them a whole lot, but if you spy one in a cemetery, they're so neat. And these are the monuments that look like a tree that's had some of its branches cut off.
1: Right. And those are called trees of life. And they're usually three to five feet of a tree trunk's bottom. Sometimes they're a little bit longer. And they're located in various cemeteries. I've seen them in a few. I know Riverside has, a, has a, quite a few of them. They were categorized as rustic movements in trade journals and catalogs. And the monuments with natural-looking tree bark and severed branches symbolize the end of life and death's inevitability. They were popular from the mid-1800s to mid-1900s. And the motif was used by the International Order of Woodmen of the World. And it was a fraternal life insurance company and its sister organization, Women of Woodcraft. So what people would do is they would buy this insurance and their headstone then would be provided or their monument would be provided from the insurance company would provide that at their death. And it was a life insurance company. So, of course, when they died, the life insurance would go to the family members as well the Tree of Life advertised the organization's motto, when silent, he speaks. Well, they were the woodmen of the world, and this is a tree. So in a way, that motto did speak, even though it was silent. There, They had their name on the monument, the woodmen of the world. Often there was a symbol on it somewhere that gave their name. Not on all of them, but on several, they would have that. So in that respect, they did speak. Some included, like we said, cut off limbs, and those symbolized a life cut short or the end of a branch of the family. Sometimes the bark was pulled down and the deceased person's name and birth and death dates were carved where the bark uh, was removed. The trunk is sometimes adorned with carvings and symbols such as ivy, vines, oak leaves, ferns, and occasionally tools representing the person's occupation. On one of the trees of life in Riverside, the man was maybe a monument maker because they had uh, tools that, for carving monuments and things like that.
0: We have a couple of pictures in the show notes from our listeners that symbolize this. Jules Havlasek took one in Nebraska, and this one is like, it looks like it's sitting on top of a stone kind of base. And it looks like it's about a three-foot type of tree that's had the top of it cut off. And I think it even says Woodman on the little placard that's in front of it. And then Holly Ann Pratter took one in Wyandotte, Ohio. This one is really cool. I don't know if you could see from over there, Mom, but it's like it has three logs underneath it. And then it's these two tree stumps that are coming out of it. So I assume it's probably a husband and a wife. And it just it's really neat imagery. Now, I think it's a darker color because there was a fire here. And so I think it discolored the monument. But really
1: neat that could be and it could be that the logs that are underneath it represent something too it could be maybe somebody else is also buried there if you have small little branches that are on there somewhere too that could be children that died early that are buried there sometimes it's just this like a tree trunk and it's like cut it in the top of it's cut at it an angle and the symbol of the woodman of the world symbol is right on the top of it it's engraved into the very top of this the circle There are so many different ones. I've seen some that look like actual real trees where they've got the trunk and then branches going up on both sides. So it's like maybe the guy was married twice, you know, the man, and then he had two different wives and they are buried there too. So there are different styles and designs and sizes for them. And they really are very unique. It's kind of neat finding them in cemeteries. I think it's just a very different kind of a monument but that's what they are. They're trees of life. And of course, different fraternal organizations besides the woodmen of the world have, they often would buy up plots in cemeteries. Unions would sometimes buy up plots in cemeteries so that their members could be buried there if they wanted to. The Independent Order of Odd Fellows, the Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks, and even the Masons often purchase group lots. You would have fire departments, railroad companies, newspapers even purchased plots for their members. And then you have the orphans places, plots for orphanages and things where the children would be buried. And sometimes they have headstones, and sometimes they don't.
0: And we have some pictures in the notes as well that depict the different symbols that are on some of these memorials. Oranda took one in Virginia City, and it's an obelisk. And then in the top of the where the name is at, it's got the little symbol. And then women who were eastern stars, that was the female component to their husbands, They would have, it would look like
1: a pentagram, basically, star on theirs. When you see that symbol on their headstones, then you know that they were Masons. And a lot of different headstones throughout cemeteries will have that. And they are not necessarily buried in a Mason section or a Mason plot. They can be anywhere in a cemetery and have that symbol. But those are called, the obelisks and things like that, those are called funerary motifs. Artwork and quality of stone craftsmanship is exemplified in the designs on monuments, memorials, headstones, crypts, and mausoleums in cemeteries throughout the United States. And you know, even in the world, because I visited cemeteries when dad and I were in South Korea, we visited a military cemetery there. And we've been in Switzerland, we visited cemeteries there, we were able to do that. So when we have a chance, we will visit cemeteries in other places. And they too have oftentimes beautiful monuments. Uh, Victorian funerary motifs included angels, lambs, weepers, sarcophagi, draped obelisks, urns, and crosses. Weepers and classically dressed mourners, usually female, are found throughout cemeteries. They are probably the most prominent monument that you're going to see. And the most beautiful. I just love those ones.
0: And they're all very unique. You don't usually see two that are identical.
1: No. And you'll see them sitting, standing, weeping, or draped in grief. Popular during the Victorian era, a robed mourner with her arm draped around a cross or leaning against it was inspired by this verse, In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And that's from The Rock of Ages, an 18th century poem, and the most popular hymn during the Victorian era. It symbolizes a soul's utter abandon and helplessness without God's grace. Then you have sexless, beardless, and winged angels who are messengers and attendants of God in human form. Artists use them in early Christian and medieval art to suggest the resurrection. Angels portrayed as women by Victorians symbolize their function as protectors of humans and escorts leading souls to heaven. The cherub, representing a heaven-bound soul and spiritual resurrection, usually adorn children's graves during the late 19th to 20th centuries, and sometimes you will find little lambs on them as well. The urn was an 18th century neoclassic mourning symbol for mortality, grief, destiny, and purity of life. Early Christians placed open Urns or urns with a stone flame rising from it at graves to symbolize the soul's separation from the ashes as it ascended into heaven, earthly death, and eternal life in heaven. Urns in various shapes and styles are found throughout cemeteries. A draped urn symbolizes mourning. The drape, sometimes emulating a raised curtain revealing heavenly life and resurrection, represents the drape used on a hearse, pals, or buyers.
0: I always think it's neat because you'll see sometimes where it's just an urn and there's nothing on it and then you'll see the draping on it. I just I think it looks really neat. And a little creepy to have the drape on it. It's almost like you're peeking at something you shouldn't. And then there's obelisks that they do the same thing with. Yes,
1: I agree. I've seen, I have seen urns in different shapes too. Like they're not all round. They can be kind of almost a square with handles on them. They'll have carvings on them sometimes. I've seen vines carved on them. So they are very unique but they are in a lot of cemeteries. Obelisks are another thing that you will find in different ones. And they come in various styles and sizes, sometimes called Cleopatra's Needle. It originates from ancient Egypt, where covered with hieroglyphics, it honored distinguished persons or deeds and represented the sun, eternal life, and regeneration. Today, it is placed on a grave to honor and perpetuate the memory of the deceased. Some are undraped, while others, like some that are riverside, are draped with different styles of tasseled palls symbolizing mourning. So even there, the drapes can be different.
0: And talking about that in Egyptian symbology, have you ever seen a mausoleum that is decked out, like it should come straight out of Egypt?
1: Yes, there is one in Fairmont.
0: Oh, you know what? I've probably seen it, but I didn't think I'd ever seen one before, and then I saw one in St. Louis We have a picture in the show notes that Heather took of the uh, one that we saw in St. Louis. And the interesting thing is the sphinxes that are on the outside of these, there's always usually two, and they can be male or female. And the picture that Heather has here in our
1: show notes, it's definitely female, which means that it is Greek rather than Roman. Sometimes they have that, and sometimes they have Egyptian symbology, and the columns will be outside, you know, Egyptian columns. And if you look inside, sometimes you can look in, in the windows on the doors, or sometimes if they have plain glass, or you can sometimes look through some of the colored glass on the sides, and they'll have sarcophagi a lot of times inside of them. So they're very interesting. Another thing that you will see in many cemeteries are various styles and sizes of crosses. A carved log cross on a pile of rough-hewn rocks symbolizes divine harvest and the end of life. The log cross, often placed on a pile of logs or rocks, was part of the rustic movement, kind of like the uh, Trees of Life, popular during the 19th and 20th centuries. The Latin cross, most commonly used form of the cross, symbolizes Christianity, redemption, the passion, and faith. And that's the cross that you often see at churches and on steeples and things like that. The Celtic cross, also known as the Irish cross and the cross of Iona, was used by early century Celtic Christians. The circle represents eternity. IHS, the first three letters of Jesus' name in Greek, stresses the individual's identity with Christ, and IHS is often engraved in the center part of the cross. Then you have the symbolism on all of these different uh, forms of monuments. Americans have used symbols, each with a meaning on tombstones since colonial times. In fact, in colonial times, if you go to Boston and some of the early cemeteries in Virginia and places like that, you will see these dark gray, often now they're dark gray, flat headstones. They look like a tablet of stone. And on them, you will see often a skull, and sometimes you'll see crossbones and things like that. But those were usually the symbols used during colonial times. The usage of symbols dramatically increased during the Victorian era. Some Victorian symbols carved on headstones, memorials, and monuments are an inverted flame torch symbolizing life, extinct, or death. An anchor symbolizes hope, steadfastness, and eternal life. If you see a harp, it means joy, worship, music of heaven, David and the Psalms, music and minstrels, and is an Irish emblem. And notice how many different meanings the harp can have. So you never know why the harp was put on a certain person's grave. They may have been a person that was really into music, could be a musician or something. It could be a person that really enjoyed music. So you never know why the harp was put there, or it could have just been a symbol that they decided to pick because they liked it. Sometimes you will see a scroll, which means divine law, advent, Old Testament, literature, and music. A rose meant love, wisdom, and beauty. The fern, spiritual victory, solitary humility, and sincerity. Easter lilies meant purity, motherhood, innocence, and resurrection. Oak leaves, and you will find these on many, 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 many monuments. Christian endurance against adversity, courage, strength of faith, and virtue, and ivy leaves are another thing you find on many monuments, and they meant memory, fidelity, friendship, attachment, and undying love or affection, immortality, faithfulness, and eternal life. The weeping willow, found in all forms of mourning materials in America, not just on monuments, symbolizes grief, bereavement, sorrow, and mortality one of the most popular symbols during the Victorian era. Its name and its drooping shape represented death and mourning. A garland or festoon of flowers was used by many cultures and civilizations in celebrations, religious rites, and funeral rites, often draped on obelisks, urns, or tops of headstones. It symbolizes victory in death. Just a word about weeping willows. Whenever I see the word or think of weeping willows, I think of the weeping willow tree that was in our neighbor's yard when I was growing up as a kid. They had the most beautiful, huge weeping willow. It came way out and it touched the ground and even kind of flowed out a little bit. And we would go under that weeping willow and it was like being in a little house. We could play house in there and it was the neatest tree I've ever seen. It's like your own secret garden. It was. It was like a secret hiding place. A book or stack of books symbolizes wisdom, knowledge, education of the deceased, book of life, or the Bible. Phrases such as asleep in Jesus, resting in peace, not dead but sleeps, and at rest engraved on the headstones or monuments were often used to soften the finality of death. If a loved one was only resting or sleeping, they were not lost forever to those left behind. Also on Monuments and headstones and the like. Besides the deceased person's name, monuments and memorials sometimes include their full birth and death dates or only birth and death years. And occasionally the person's age in years, months and days. I love it when they put the whole birth and death years, date, the whole date, because then you actually know when the person was born and when they died. When you just have the years, it's still sketchy. If they put the years, but then they put the person's age in years, month, and days. You can kind of guess then about when they died. I always like
0: those ones where it says they were six years, 10 months, and three days.
1: I know. That's very specific. Yes, and and you see that quite often. Epitaphs quoting Bible verses or expressing sentiments such as wishes, hopes, beliefs, death, resurrection, life's brevity, patriotism, etc., are sometimes inscribed on monuments and memorials.
0: We encourage everybody to check out our show notes because we have a lot of pictures that members of our Spooktacular crew shared that were unique symbols or some of the symbols that we were going to talk about on this episode that they've taken pictures of in cemeteries. Kathy Webb Thomas shared some really cool ones. There's one at Highgate that looks like a person covering their face and crying. And another one there that is these stair steps, and I'm sure some of you have seen these on the internet before. It says dead as you're going down, so it's D-E-A-D as you're going down these stair steps, and that's the tombstone. Lorelai Mitchell shared a modern day interpretation of St. Francis in a cemetery in Naperville, Illinois. And it just looks really cool because he's kind of bending down and talking to a bird, it looks like. Another symbol that we have several pictures of are shaking hands or clasping hands. And this is generally thought of to be a symbol of matrimony. You can tell the gender by looking at the sleeves, which one's the male and the female. Generally, what this represents is that one person has left and the other's been left behind. So it's a husband, and wife still holding hands with each other or uh, spouses of some nature. Historically, neutral sleeves represent a welcome into heaven or goodbye from a loved one. You'll also see hands that are pointing up, which is an indication of heaven or down as a divine message to those that are still left here on earth. We had uh, Kathy Webb Thomas shared one from St. Augustine and Jean Nares shared one as well. We have an example of a draped urn from Nicole McFadden. Winged skulls are very prominent up in New England cemeteries. For example, in Boston, we saw a lot of these. And Katrina Ray Salas shared a couple of tombstones that she took in Salem that feature these tombstones that have these winged skulls. These were popular, especially in the 17th and 18th century. It signifies the fleetingness of life and the soul soaring into the afterlife. And I just think they're really cool. There's also flying hourglasses that you might have seen on a headstone and this is similar to the winged skull. It indicates the swiftness of time's passage and sometimes it literally means flying away with wings. A dove is usually found on the graves of women who died young and it represents peace and purity. The bloom of the rose symbolizes the age of a lady when she died, whether as a rosebud or in full bloom and if its thorny stem is snapped, it indicates that her life has been cut off. April Barber shared a picture from Virginia that features a lamb. And Tammy McCarroll Burroughs took one in Spring Grove in Cincinnati that shows what looks like a a babe in swaddling clothes, maybe a cherub laying on top of a, a tomb that was probably for a child. And a really unique one features, from Tammy as well in Atlanta, features an elephant that is carved on the tombstone. It's very cool. And it reminds me of a cemetery that I've been to that's in Astatula here in Florida. I drive past it probably three or four times a week. And the woman had to have loved elephants because there are a couple of statuary that are a big elephant and then a little elephant. And it's just a little knockabout, small, little town cemetery. And so the first time I ever passed it and saw this elephant sitting in the middle of it, I went, wow, that's kind of weird. Speaking of weird things in the middle of a cemetery, Anna Pratofrius took a picture in Riverside of what looks like a dragon in the grass. So it's, it's as if the grass is water, so you can kind of see it looping up, kind of like the Loch Ness Monster. She also captured a hippo in what you would consider the nursery of a cemetery, and this is in the same Riverside Cemetery. It's very cute. Probably the most bizarre symbol that we had sent to us was Patrick Kellers from over at the Big Seance podcast, and he caught this in one of the cemeteries in Natchez, and it's really weird. It's a head that looks like it has four snakes coming out of it, wings in the place where the ears would be, and then three legs coming out of the head in like a circular motion. It is bizarre. When you see it from a distance, you almost think it's like a jester. Kind of gives me that feel. But then when you look it up close, and I have no idea what any of that is supposed to mean. And then we have some other really cool pictures from Rhonda that she took in Prague and Salzburg. Ruth Schulte shared one from South Dakota that is a young woman who looks like she's holding a bouquet. We have a picture of a Gypsy Queen grave from Marion, Ohio from Holly Ann Pratter. And then Tavia Saldivar took some pictures down in the Key West Cemetery, which we will be visiting next year. And of course, it has conch shells. Very unique and cool. We also share some pictures in the show notes that Denise took when we were at Bonaventure. So you've got little Gracie, which is a very famous sculpture of a little girl there. There's also Jesus standing before the heavenly gate. Very cool statuary. And just some other pictures that she took of women weeping at gravesides. We got a really cool Celtic cross that Denise also shares that we took at Sleepy Hollow. And we have an example of the anchor mom Denise took a picture of that at Mount Feek Cemetery. Probably the coolest tombstone that we had shared with us was from Jean Nowers. And it's from Matawan, New Jersey. And the family name on it says Holsart. And then there's three names underneath it. You've got Miriam M. Clinton C. And then Zombie. And I kid you not, it's Z-O-M-B-I-E. Very interesting. Well, and in talking about the Woodman's mom, uh, Jules Hablasek took a really cool picture that is of a leaf. Maybe the oak leaf that you're talking about. And then there's an axe and what looks like a a hammer or something in front of it. And it says MWA. So probably maybe whatever state Woodman's Association is probably what that is. It's very neat. She also took pictures of some other symbols that I don't even know how to describe, but they're very pretty. Jules Havlasek took that one that you're talking about, Mom, with the IHS, and it's on a cross and there's some flowers underneath that. And then it looks like there's the Catholic heart with a cross symbol also there. Some other interesting symbols, maybe you've seen an anvil. This can be the creation or forging of the universe. Blacksmith's graves usually have those. If you see an apple, usually it pertains to the first sin, sin, something like that. Grapes usually symbolize the blood of Christ. A gate would be a passage from earth to heaven. We have a picture of a flower garland in the show notes, and this is victory in death. A butterfly symbolizes resurrection. We know that the caterpillar becomes the butterfly, so it's a symbol of the body becoming something else, so the soul leaving the flesh, the body, that kind of thing. Well, along with the Easter lily, there are calla lilies, and these represent beauty, The thistle represents earthly sorrow. The thorns on a thistle symbolize the crown of thorns, so this would point back towards the Passion of Christ, and they're found on a lot of Scottish gravestones. Swords on a tombstone represent martyrdom, and if you see cross swords, these are usually put on veterans, especially officers' tombstones. I recall when we were in Illinois and visiting all of the Lincoln's tomb that there were several headstones there that were upside down cannons and those were used generally for marking where a general was buried. Sabrina also shared an interesting tombstone that looks almost like a skull with wings on it only the inside of it looks kind of like a smiley face or probably maybe a sun. So I'm not sure why it has the wings on it but if this is a sun that symbolizes the soul rising to heaven. Occasionally you will see soldiers on a horse. These are used for soldiers graves. If the horse has both front legs in the air, the person probably died in battle. If only one leg is raised, the person probably died as a result of wounds. and if the horse has all four legs on the ground, the person probably died of natural causes. Buddhist graves will usually have the Shitsu of foe on there. Some people sometimes think this is a dog, others think it's a dragon. Either way, that's usually a guardian of Buddha. so if you see that on somebody's grave, they're probably a Buddhist. If you see a shell, this is a symbol of baptism or rebirth. Generally you'll see a child inside of that shell. We saw something like this in Bonaventure where a girl is actually holding the shell. It's a very cool statue. And this is like an open clam shell. The Sith is the reaping of life. If you see scales, this often symbolizes somebody who was in the legal profession or it could be seen with a statue of St. Michael and he had the duty of weighing the souls of the departed. That would be him weighing your soul. If you see a knot, this symbolizes marriage and unity. An eye is usually found in a triangle or within a sunburst and this is a Masonic symbol, generally speaking. If you see a fallen tree on a tombstone, this is mortality and death. The Eastern Cross, this is one of those crosses that it looks like a regular cross at the top and then it has like a longer bar going across it right underneath the shorter bar. And then there's a third one that's kind of cockeyed, looks like it's kind of fallen to one side. This is Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox or Greek Catholic. They use this symbol. And those three bars symbolize the cross that Christ was crucified on. The top bar is the title board. The middle one is the board on which the Lord's hands were nailed. And then the bottom bar that's kind of cockeyed is the footrest. Eagles are generally seen on gravestones of Civil War veterans. St. John is also represented by the eagle. If you see it as a double-headed eagle, generally that is a Masonic symbol. And that's part of the Scottish Rite. A dogwood is resurrection, sacrifice, and eternal life. And dogs, and I've seen a couple of these where they have a dog near the tombstone or on the tombstone, is loyalty, fidelity, watchfulness, and vigilance. A daisy is usually found on the graves of young children, and it's a symbol of their innocence. If you ever see a boat on a tombstone, this is a voyage, generally crossing over to the other side. So many great things on tombstones. And then I've seen on one mausoleum, and I can't remember what cemetery we were in, but it had this winged solar disk at the top. It was very cool looking. It looks like multiple wings with a circle in the middle. This is an Egyptian symbol, represents the journey of the sun, spiritual attributes of the heavens. Generally, it is a Zoroastrian symbol and it can symbol all different kinds of things it could be the soul without physical form could be a symbol of divine power if you see a human figure that's rising out of that center disc that i was talking about that could be either god or the person who's died those three rows of feathers represent good words good thoughts and good deeds and if you see a tail and the tail if it has different levels are bad deeds bad thoughts and bad words that would be towards the bottom of it so they're rising above those bad things that they've done Wheat represents the harvest. It's usually found on older people's gravestones. And a tulip symbolizes love and passion. And what's kind of cool about tulips, I don't know if people know, but it continues to grow after it's been cut. So that's a really cool thing about tulips, which if you put that on somebody's grave, you can think of the symbolism for that. They've been cut off, but they're still continuing to go on
1: or grow. And here, I'm going to read you some epitaphs that were inscribed on white bronze headstones, and they were just flat stones. And on the front, they had different symbols representing each of their three children. And on the back was a hand holding a handkerchief between the thumb and the forefinger, and it was dripping water to show sorrow that this handkerchief was sodden. H.J. and Maggie Mernon lost three children close together. They voiced their grief in the epitaphs they chose for each of their children. The verse on the white bronze headstone for Eva, who died in November 1889 at seven years, seven months, six days, says, We miss thee from our home, dear. We miss thee from thy place. A shadow o'er our life is cast. We miss the sunshine of thy face. We miss thy kind and loving hand, thy fond and earnest care. Our home is dark without thee. We miss thee everywhere. Edward died four days later, at three years, 16 days. His verse says, Another little lamb has gone to dwell with him who gave. Another little darling babe is sheltered in the grave. God needed one more angel child amidst his shining band, and so he bent loving smile and clasped our darling's hand. I cry every time I read that one. Harry died seven months later in June 1890 at eight months, 18 days. His verse says, this lovely bud, so young, so fair, called hence by early doom, just came to show how sweet a flower in paradise would bloom. Ere sin could harm or sorrow fade, death came with friendly care." The opening bud to heaven conveyed and bade it blossom there. So in less than a year,
0: those parents lost three of their children.
1: Yes. Can you imagine what that must have done to them? And yet they are not alone. This happened to so many, many parents.
0: Well, that was fascinating, Mom. Thank you for sharing your knowledge on the different things that we find in cemeteries, whether it's the symbology or the monuments and just your knowledge on all that stuff. Do you have a favorite cemetery? I know you've been in literally, I don't know, hundreds maybe at this point. Do you have one that you would say, that is my favorite cemetery I've been in?
1: Well, now you've asked a really difficult question. (laughs) You really have. I probably should say Riverside because I wrote the book on it. But yes, I like that cemetery very much. But it was more because of the historic people that were buried there that because I was a historian in Denver that I knew about these people. And so it was more the people in that cemetery than it was the cemetery itself. I don't know. I have visited some beautiful cemeteries and I've visited some very small ones. And I guess I really don't have a favorite. I think they all have something unique and special about all of them. I sometimes when I visit cemeteries that I'm not real familiar with that I don't know the history of the people buried there, I try to find out about them so that it means a little bit more to me. When you walk by the graves and you know that this is somebody of importance or somebody that did something, that person means a little bit more to you than than other things. But maybe the cemetery that probably has some of the best meaning to me would be Arlington Cemetery. And I lived next door to Arlington Cemetery for two years. You know, it was right next door to the apartments that I lived in. Many people don't know that that was a private cemetery originally. The General Lee, Robert E. Lee family that came down through him, but he owned, there's a house there, the Lee house in the cemetery and you can visit it. It's open to the public. And that was his home. And he lost that land Because he fought for the South during the Civil War, and it was confiscated. And then later it became a national cemetery. But if you go to the original graves that are there, you will find a way back, a relative of Thomas Jefferson is buried there, a a woman. Oh, wow. And so it was a very it was a private cemetery to begin with, but it is a beautiful cemetery and uh, it has a lot of meaning. I want to mention something else that a lot of people probably do not realize, but people weren't always embalmed. Embalming came around during the Civil War because a lot of the bodies had to be shipped home and they didn't always ship them home either. They were just buried in a cemetery somewhere wherever the battle took place. And sometimes they were buried in mass graves because there were so many of them. But embalming came about at that time period. And so that's why we have it today. But it was at that time period here in the United States.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Mom. We really appreciate that.
1: And you're very welcome. And I'm glad that you enjoy cemeteries as much as I do. So now we'll go ahead and get
0: into the spooky haunted part of our episode we're going to start with Hookman's Cemetery, which was suggested to us by listener Joe Costa. Hookman
2: Cemetery is located in Seymour, Connecticut, just off Cemetery Road. The town of Seymour is in New Haven County and was named for Governor Thomas H. Seymour. It was incorporated in 1850. This is a relatively small cemetery with burials dating back to the 1800s. What makes this graveyard haunted is the legend that is told about the man for whom it is named. The man's last name was Hookman, and he was accused of a crime that he claimed he did not commit. The locals took justice into their own hands and decided to hang him. It is said that he was hanged on one of the large trees at the back of the cemetery. From that time forward, he has haunted the land here, and his apparition has been seen roaming the cemetery. People who see or feel him claim that he is an angry spirit. Locals claim that if you are driving on the road next to the cemetery at night, that your car will stall and you will hear faint scratching sounds on the outside of the car. Amanda posted on the ghost town's website, I went with a few of my friends and took some pictures there, and out of 24 exposure roll, I had 11 pictures with very distinct human forms. This was my first time ever doing anything like this. My pictures were extremely close up to the form. In some of them, you can actually see a human form. There are some distinct ones of faces, and in one of the shots, I had my three friends stand in a group, and although it was a clear night, the picture features a thick cloud over their heads. I took a picture of one of the gravestones, and there was a large cloud of what looked like fog around it. I think this one was an evil spirit because the fog had a purple tint to it, and the others were gray. Now, we're not sure of what the color purple had to do with evil, but we found a similar story in an actual picture on the Ghostwatch website of a white mist. The author of the blog post claimed that it was a clear night as well and that he was not a smoker, so he has no idea where the mist came from.
0: Yeah, when you look at that picture, Denise, I mean, it, it looks like there's something in there. Normally, you would think it'd be some kind of fog, but usually fog isn't that close to the ground. And if we're to believe that it was a clear night, I don't know where else it would have come from.
2: Right, because it definitely does not look like what you would see on a clear night to me.
0: No, and it's, I mean, it's right above the grass. We do have that picture posted in the show notes. Now we're going to go up to Wyndham, Maine and talk about a couple of cemeteries up there. The township of New Marblehead, which was the original name of Wyndham, was granted in 1734 by the Massachusetts General Court to Abraham Howard, Joseph Blaney, and 58 other men from Marblehead, Massachusetts. A fort was built here in 1744 by order of the Massachusetts General Court. This was during the King George's War. The fort was a 50-foot square blockhouse constructed of 12-inch thick hewn hemlock. Water power was plentiful and many mills were built. The Cumberland and Oxford Canal brought the ability for exporting and importing. By 1859, Wyndham had eight sawmills, a corn and flour mill, two shingle mills, a fulling mill, two carding mills, a woolen textile factory, a barrel factory, a chair stuff factory, the gunpowder factory, and two tanneries. Later, a railroad brought more industry. The town is still fairly small today with a population under 20,000. The first cemetery we want to look at is Chute Road Cemetery.
2: Halfway down Chute Road in Wyndham, Maine is the Chute Road Cemetery. It is an old unkept graveyard with different material like stone, wood, and chicken wire creating fencing. This was originally meant to be the Chute family graveyard, but a few other families have been buried here as well. There are also the Cobb, Kingsbury, and Sweat families. The first man to settle New Marblehead was Captain Thomas Shute and he established the New Marblehead Plantation in 1737. He was born in London in 1690. He had been married with two daughters and was killed in Falmouth in 1767. He is not buried here though. There is just a monument to his memory that was funded by his great grandson George Shute. There is a monument here for George as well. He is the one who bought the plot for his family to be buried. Josiah Shute is buried here. He received a Revolutionary War land grant after fighting in it as a teenager. He was shot in the shoulder with a musket during the war. He died in 1834 at the age of
0: 75. The tales of a haunting at this cemetery have nothing to do with the Shutes, though. Apparently, two young girls who lived near the cemetery went missing. Some people believe that they fell into a well or mine shaft. They were never found. It was assumed that they had died and so two tombstones were erected here in their memory. No one knows why since they are not actually buried here but people claim to see the apparitions of two young girls playing in the cemetery and sometimes right outside of it. Denise I went into the official records in Wyndham and they have all of the cemeteries. Somebody has painstakingly gone through those cemeteries and listed all of the markers and the names that are on them. Thankfully, this one doesn't have so many. So I did not have to go through a whole bunch of them. There's probably about 20 headstones here. And I didn't see any that contain the names of two young girls. There was one young daughter of somebody, but she was only a few months old. So I'm not sure if this is just some kind of a legend here because I couldn't find tombstones with the girls names on them. So not sure how truthful that story is.
2: Yes, and so if any of our listeners know otherwise, please pass on your information to us.
0: And then we have the Smith-Anderson Cemetery, which is also in Wyndham. The formal name of this cemetery is the Old Smith
2: Burial Ground. It is one of the oldest graveyards in the town of Wyndham. It is found on a dirt road across from the Parson smith Homestead on the River Road. Some of the area's earliest settlers are interred here. There is the Anderson Family Crypt and something called the Stone Den. The den is said to be home to a male spirit. There are stories of full-bodied apparitions being seen, weird mist, various light phenomena, and shadow figures. People who visit the cemetery return to their parked cars only to find that they have moved as much as five or six feet forward or backward. Sometimes the car doors are wide open. Maine Ghost Hunters has been out to the cemetery to investigate. They conducted ghost box sessions and other EVP sessions and it was clear when they were in the stone den that they were not welcome. They captured a picture of a red orb inside the den that did not look like the other sunspots that they had captured in pictures. They said they were skeptical of orbs but this one was strange.
0: One of the investigators wrote, at one point I asked the name of the spirit I was speaking with at the time. Flash forward to a couple of days later when I was reviewing the evidence. For this particular batch of evidence, I decided to review the audio evidence first and the visual evidence last. So I sifted through the different aspects of audio, written notes, and I bookmarked the actual files, etc. In one particular spot, the point where I asked the spirit what its name was, I thought I may have heard a response of Matthew. This was observed before I had looked at any of the video or any of the photographs we had taken. After I finished with the audio, almost all of which I found to be less than impressive and less than persuasive, I sifted through the photos when, lo and behold, I came across a somewhat recent headstone within the last 40 years that said, Matthew on it. It struck me immediately. Every now and again, as an investigator, you come across a piece of evidence, such as the EVP I thought may have been saying Matthew but wasn't sure, that seems insignificant until you find another separate piece of evidence that corroborates what you thought might have been slightly possible. When this happens to me, it sometimes sends a shiver up my spine. I remember looking at this headstone thinking, I wonder why of all the headstones, why is there a picture of this, Matthew? And then it hit me. There are those who believe that not much in this life happens by accident. There are no accidents. Maybe they're right. I don't know. It was just very coincidental. Well, Denise, you know what I think of coincidences? I don't believe in them. So yes, and I've always thought
2: them is when God chooses to remain anonymous.
0: Well, I know that uh, Jessica Chobot of Bizarre States calls them God-wincidences, so hey. very similar. So me and Jessica, again, we're in that synchronicity thing except for the language. If you start talking like Jessica does, I'm going to wonder who you are. I'm going to have you exercised, and I don't mean taking you out for a run. <laughs> oh, is that
2: because I need exercise, but <laughs> I, I, I see which one you're talking about now. Yes. Learning about cemetery symbology is fascinating. The way that we as humans have memorialized our dead is one of the most fascinating pieces of history. These headstones remind us that this person once lived. And in some cases, that person's spirit is still hanging around the cemetery. Are these cemeteries haunted? That is for you to decide.
0: Well, Denise, I really loved having Mom on to talk about the cemetery symbology. I mean, anytime we could talk about cemeteries, I'm just in heaven. I love talking about them. I love going through them and I love this idea that Suzanne came up with Cemetery Bingo and she made up cards for us and what we are going to do is in the Spooktacular crew we can post files there. So this will be under files. You find those when you go on the Spooktacular group page. On the left hand side at the top there's a column and it has posts, videos, blah blah blah. There's a tab there that says files. You click on that and I will put this under spooktacular cemetery bingo and then you can download it from there and print it off she made up some other cards too but we're just going to have the one up there for right now because we are setting up a special event that everybody listening all across the world is going to be invited to join us on
2: oh how fun an international party
0: yeah it's an international cemetery bingo party what we're going to do mark your calendars we'll set up an event on facebook as well October 29th it is a Sunday so hopefully not all of you have to work on Sundays except for (laughs) me now because my days off changed. I know sometimes I would love to strangle Disney the way they change up your schedule so we don't have our days off together but maybe we can go after work.
2: Yeah because I'll I'll, I'll probably get off early since all the high seniority are off that day.
0: So it doesn't matter the time or where you go but you'll probably want to choose a cemetery that's nearby. You take your cemetery bingo card out there with you and you try to find as many of those symbols as you can in the cemetery that you are in. And you'll mark those off and you'll probably want to take some pictures of them as well. We're going to be doing this trusting that you when you tell us that you got certain things that you did get them. But if you had some pictures to back it up, that's even better. And this is going to be like blackout bingo. So we're not going for straight down or straight across or diagonal or what have you. This is... Fill in as many of those squares as you can. And whoever fills out the most is going to win a prize. Yay, we like winning prizes. Prizes are always a lot of fun. Now, if we have a tie, we're going to have to come up with how we're going to break that tie.
2: Uh, Pads on in the ring.
0: Denise, I don't think them. It's going to be kind of impossible because what if we have somebody in this state win and somebody in this country win? How are they going to fight with each other? There's no sparring. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God Denise isn't running these contests. Here's what we'll do as a tiebreaker. When you are in the cemetery, if you find a unique headstone, I mean, it's something that's like you've never seen it before, or maybe it's a symbol that isn't on the bingo card. Take a picture of that, and then we will vote on which of those unique pictures is the most unique, and maybe we'll put it to a vote in the Spectacular crew, and then that person will win.
2: Yeah, so it could be the most unique or the most, like, cool.
0: And I have a feeling that one of the things that will be incorporated in what the winner gets is one of our Taffophile t-shirts.
2: I think that would probably be a really good prize. That seems like that would be poignant. And then, and for un- those who don't know what that is, it has a headstone on it and it says, I seek dead people, I'm a Tafophile.
0: Yes. And if you should already happen to have that t-shirt like I do and you win, then we'll think of something else for you. Okay. Or you can get it in a different color. Or that too. So that'll be great fun, October 29th. Another event that we have coming up in August of 2018. We've been talking about it on here. Potter and Love, that conference. If you want to join us for that, you go onto the website for it and put in Bump, B-U-M-P, when you are checking out, and that will give you 10% off of your tickets. We'd love to have you guys join us for that.
2: And I do want to put something in here as well. In July of 2018, we are doing our first History Goes Bump trip and that is going to be the Key West we weren't sure what was going to happen with Hurricane Irma going through but I've been staying really close to the websites and it looks like they're opening everything up for cruise ships and tourism again at the end of October so we're not going until next July so I think we are good to go so if you're not on Facebook in History Goes Bump or the Spooktacular crew because I'm posting the registration there please contact us if you're interested in going on the trip but it is going to be from July 13th to July 16th, 2018, we're going to Key West. We're meeting in Miami. The cost and everything, we can either email that to you or you can look on either of those places. I'll be posting it both in both places. So we're super excited to have the Spooktacular crew come on our inaugural first History Goes Bump trip.
0: We want to encourage you to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We are going to be taking a week's vacation in October, which is completely insane because that's our busiest month. So what we're doing is trying to get episodes recorded and done ahead of time. And we interviewed one of our listeners who's going to be joining us for one of our October episodes the other night. And she wanted to make sure that we shared with you guys that there is a para-rally in South Bend, Indiana, at the Century Center on October 13th and 14th, put on by Sacred Crow. She'll be giving a talk there on one of those days. And so if you're in that area and you want to check out a paranormal convention, there you go. We did hear from
2: Sheila on the website. I work third shift at a factory which makes safety equipment, including hard hats, of which I am one of the six on staff who print logos on the hats. Listening to podcasts is very popular throughout the plant, and one of my co-workers told me about yours. I believe she has already binged until up to date. I'm on episode 52. I love the combining of history and paranormal. Paranormal. I like the description skeptical believer, and I think the banter between Diane and Denise is fun. I tell people I'm listening to ghost stories, and I've passed the podcast name on to a few, and no one really bats an eye because they know I'm into the paranormal. We have a resident spirit, Doug, and over the last year I've had several new employees be pointed in my direction to explain Doug. I tell them if they see a shadow out of the corner of their eye, hear a weird noise, or walk through a cold spot, just say hi Doug and continue on. They and Doug totally appreciate the advice. And I truly enjoy your podcast. I look forward to getting caught up over the next month and maybe up to date by Halloween, my favorite holiday. Thanks for all the work you do putting these podcasts and the blog together. Blessed be. And we also heard from Travis, when my wife and I first started dating, my grandfather had passed away about two months previously. Now, my wife had never seen my grandfather either in person or a picture of him. We were walking along the beach and she turned to me and said, I hope you don't think I'm crazy, but your papa's is walking with us. She then went on to describe to me an elderly man standing just behind me wearing the exact clothes he was wearing for his funeral. She told me his nickname for me and the smell of the soap he used. About two weeks later, I took her home to meet my parents, to which she turned to my mom after meeting her for 30 seconds and said to her, your dad is proud of you and he likes what you said at his funeral. I never told my wife which parent's father my grandfather was. My sister was a bit of a skeptic, so she went and got some old pictures of both sets of my grandparents, great-uncles, and random people. She was able not only to point out the grandfather who passed, but name his wife, my grandmother, by his pet name for her, which I didn't even know. My mom confirmed that it was what he used to call my nana when my mom was a young girl. Wow, what a great story. And I guess his sister might have become a bit of a believer after that.
0: I would say so. And I asked Travis, has your wife ever felt sensitive? And he told me that before his dad had called him to tell him that the family dog had passed away, that she had turned to him and told him that she'd had a dream or that she had somehow knew that that had happened. So he goes, yeah, I think she's got some abilities. On our next episode, we are celebrating our three year anniversary, Denise. Wow, that's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to bringing that to you. We will have our winners for the Flash Fiction Contest. And then we also will be joined by Miranda of Spooky Little Halloween to talk about Halloween. And I just got done editing that interview with her. And it had me totally biting at the bit to just jump into Halloween. So we ended up decorating right after that.
2: Yes, and the inside of our house looks great. We already have all the outside stuff ready to go out there as soon as the HOA says it's okay
0: yeah so we have to wait till the first so right after our anniversary special we'll be running out there to get the outside decorations up and going
2: yeah, we're going to have little ghosts flying in the graveyard, sort of like the Haunted Mansion. I'm super excited.
0: Yes, Denise is so excited. She got one of those little lights, you know how they have the ones for Christmas that throw the green and red lights and whatever up on the house. Well, we have one that has a little flying ghost and it'll be right behind our cemetery. So it'll look like basically like the Haunted Mansion Cemetery with all the ghosts flying out of it. I should buy the
2: soundtrack. So instead of playing your creepy one, we could play Grim Grinning
0: Ghosts. We could do that too. I have no problem with that anything that keeps the house looking creepy though because last year we were dubbed oh that's the creepy house and i was so excited
2: oh yes diane was like yay because this little girl walking down the street was like oh yeah that's
0: that really creepy house from last year i have been dubbed the creepy house on the cul-de-sac we have some apple podcast reviews to share with you Our first review comes from Chachski. Very cool five stars. I heard about this through Hillbilly Horror Stories, and I really like this podcast. And the history, oddities, and haunting topics keep up the good work. And that's Trini Martinez. Thanks so much. Texan in Virginia. Fantastic five stars. And the comment is five stars. Thank you, Texan, for that. Dr. Trixie. Wonderful podcast five stars. I've been listening for over a year and enjoy the podcast so much that I became an EP. I'm thrilled that my secret pleasure has become so popular and their success represents their hard work. Well, thank you, Dr. Trixie. We appreciate that. We want to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank Marianne Shabanis for increasing your pledge. And welcome new executive producer, Sabrina Mendoza-Quispie. Thanks. Sweet dreams.